Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're entering the book of Leviticus. And you know how much fun Leviticus is, those of you who have studied with me. Um, it is awesome and fun stuff. This is the book written by our source, P, um, is uh, the priestly writer. So when we talk about our sources, we talk about J, E, P, and D. We talk about, right, the Yahwist, the Elohist, the priestly writer, and the Deuteronomist. So we are now in the priestly material. Um, We've discussed before whether or not this is a manual for the priests, or is it a manual explaining to the people what the priests are supposed to be doing. So it doesn't really matter because what, what we have, you know, in front of us is, is the instructions, whether they are written for the priests or whether they are written for the people to hold the priests accountable um, doesn't really matter ultimately. So we are uh, in the triennial uh, reading, which is going to take us into the Chatat offering. So, um, Chatat generally is translated as sin offering, um, but we are going to follow the school of Jacob Milgram, who translate this at, translates this as a purification offering, a purgation offering. Why is that? That's because chet can mean both sin and purification from sin. So that, that which you have to do to purify uh, from sin. And the question is purify who or what? Whom or what are we purifying? And um, again, I follow the school of Jacob Milgram. It says that what is being purified is the Mishkan. It is the place to which the dross of sin is attracted. And if too much of that gathers in the Mishkan, God's presence cannot dwell in the Mishkan. And of course, that's the entire point of the Mishkan is to have the divine presence uh, in the center of the camp. And if not, then very dangerous things can happen. So you want God's presence there. God's presence is is pushed away by sin, by, by the junk that accompanies sin. One cannot sin in a premeditated manner and be forgiven by the sancta through the cult. Doesn't happen. This is only for inadvertent sin. So it is accidental. It is a sin of doing something one is not supposed to do. So, sorry, you are violating a do not commandment. So do not do X, do not do Y, and you do X or Y, and it is brought to your attention and or you realize it. So um, Tamar Kamienkowski, if you recall, last time we studied Deuteronomy, last time we studied Leviticus, you'll recall I was uh, talking from her her, uh, volume um, on the Wisdom Commentary series. She comments on Leviticus. Dr. Tamar Kamienkowski says, Um, the example is I go into a bookstore and I take a newspaper and I don't pay for it. It it could be because I think newspapers are free. I don't realize there's a charge. I don't see a price tag. So I take it. That's, I have sinned out of ignorance of the law. I could take that newspaper and put it in my bag and then I forget to pay for it. So that is an inadvertent act of sin um, because I was unaware that I was doing it. Then I get home and I discovered the newspaper. Now I have to bring a chatat offering because now I realize that I have inadvertently screwed up. Okay. So, so just to be very, very clear that we are talking about cleansing the Mishkan. We are, some people argue you're cleansing the person. So that's why I'm being, that's why I'm being forthright about uh, my interpret, who I follow as my uh, interpretation um, so, so I am being forthright in saying that that's how I interpret it because it makes the most sense to me. Um, when you see the many uses of chatat and the many instances in which one must bring a chatat, it is not always for sin. <clears throat> it is also for some other stuff, which is why I agree with Milgram 
um, and other scholars who say that it is a purification offering, sin brings ritual impurity. But so do other things for which a chatat is brought. That's why many of us translate it as something more than a sin offering, because there's, there's times you bring a chatat and you have not sinned. So let's say a nazir. Um, you'll remember Samson, Samson and Delilah. Samson was a nazir. He took vows not to cut his hair, not to drink wine, um, all of that stuff. And um, so when a, when a nazir is finished with the period for which the nazir vowed to refrain from all those things, the nazir brings a chatat offering. The nazir has not sinned, but has to bring a chatat. So, um, so it's just one case, but there, there are many others where it is not for sin that one brings a chatat. All right. So that's number one. We are going to begin um, in the second year triennial readings. That's why we're at the chatat. But there are other offerings that come before this. And there's a theory, according to some scholars, that the other offerings are described first in the book of Leviticus because the Israelites would have been familiar with them. And that the chatat offering is something new in the and is part of a new Israelite cultic system. And the priestly writer needs to write about stuff that's familiar to the Israelites first and then get their buy-in for this idea of purifying the space, purifying the space through uh, bringing a chatat and then the offerings after the chatat. We're going to see that the um, chatat offering is... Um, divided into a group, into a kind of a class system, if you will, Um, in four, we're talking about four groups of people who have to bring a chatat. One is the anointed priest. The second is the assembly of all Israel. The third is the ruler. And the fourth is the lay individual. So all of these groups have a description about um, how it is that they bring a chatat. (laughs) <laughs> for the Torah novice, what does second year triennial reading mean? So we, every Torah portion, um, every Torah portion has a certain amount of chapters in it. Um, progressive Jews do not have the patience to study an entire Torah portion. And this has been the case for a very long time. In the medieval period, triennial reading was the norm. So it's not just that we've lost our ability to pay attention, although that's true, um, but we, we just can't, we can't do it. It's just too much. So, um, so in the Middle Ages, they divided the each Torah portion into thirds, so that people who are reading on an annual cycle and people who are reading on a three-year cycle are in the same Torah portion. So you don't have different Jewish communities reading different parts of the Torah at different parts of the year. You want to keep everybody together. So as a unifying factor, you just read the first third one year, the second third the second year, and the third third of each Torah portion the third year. So we are in the second year of a triennial cycle. We, we started the first year last year. What does that mean for people like me? <laughs> Never caught on the year before. Well, this is why you're sometimes so confused, Alexandra, and disoriented when we start a Parsha, because there's been two, there's been a whole third of the Parsha we were in. And the first third of the Parsha we're, we're doing this week that you've, that we didn't talk about. So it's very, it makes it very disjointed in some ways. Um, But, but the leaders of the community felt it was more important that Jews all be in the same portion than that you know, then that we read the partia, then, then that we read the sections contiguous. Mm-hmm. Does this apply to all sects of Judaism? Whoever reads on a triennial cycle, yes. Mm-hmm. Whoever reads on a triennial cycle is reading the same third. There are many places on the internet where you can see a summary of the whole portion. So you can I was see... just saying like the cliff notes, I'm sure. Of, right. Of the so Torah. you can read the missing pieces. Yes. Because I mean, that's why I keep asking like, wait, what happened? <laughs> Right. Uh, just last week, we were doing something completely different. You know? Right. That's why. Because a whole third of that, a whole third is missing. Two thirds is missing. This is what it must be like in English class for many students. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Yes, exactly. Thank you. Sure. Okay. So um, so the other question um, that just came from Susan was, what is the difference between the assembly of Israel and a lay person? One is communal. One is individual. One is I took the newspaper and I didn't realize it. 
The other one is everybody took a newspaper, <laughs> right? So one is communal, one is individual. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about what that means. And we're going to close with um, Greenberg, Yitz Greenberg, who like, I was like, preach, Yitz, preach. So we're going to end with some amazing preaching by Yitz Greenberg about what the implications for us of all of this is, I promise. Okay. So let, but, but before we do that, um, I, I need to go back to basics for those who either have forgotten, um, God forbid, or those who, um, those who are new. So yes, this is meaningful, actually. I know it's hard to believe, but this is meaningful, this scribble on the whiteboard. So the first word there in Hebrew is korban, which is sacrifice. That is the Hebrew term for sacrifice. Sacrifice is obviously an English term coming from Latin. It is not Hebrew. Hebrew does not have a word for sacrifice. This is the word, korban. The shoresh, whenever you see those periods, those dots after a letter, it's telling you this is the root of the word. What is the root? Kuf, resh, vet, right? So it's the, the root of korban is karov, close, near. So those are the sounds, right? The transliteration of that shoresh, of that root, close, to come close, keruv, karov. So that is the word for what happens when you're bringing an animal and offering it to the priest to ritually slaughter and then put on the altar. You are coming close to God. You are drawing God close to you. You are having lunch together. A korban is dinner with the divine. And when you kill an animal, unless it's an Allah, unless it's a Holocaust, when you kill an animal, the priests are going to eat part of it. You're going to get part of it as the offerer and part of it is burned on the altar for God. The fat and all the stuff that smells really good is burned on the altar. And that's the offering that God gets. The reach nichoach, the amazing smell of fat burning on the altar. Think of a grill. Someone in your neighborhood is grilling I don't know about y'all, I can smell it five miles away if somebody's got meat on the grill because that delicious smell um, permeates everything, particularly in the ancient world where they didn't eat a lot of meat. It was hugely expensive to eat meat. So when you made a korban, when you drew the divine close, when you drew close to the divine for whatever reason, you fed the entire clan because it was a lot of meat and they did not have freezers. So this is, think of it as a festive meal. So you're not only drawing the divine close and drawing close to the divine, you're bringing the community close. You're bringing your family close together. That was the point of a korban. Some people want to focus on the expiatory nature of sacrifice, meaning this animal's blood substitutes for my blood because really I should be, you know, dealt with harshly given what I've done. Maybe that's the origin of it, but that is really not the focus of the cultic system. It really is about korban, about drawing close, about nearness, about proximity to the divine. Okay. Ed Dreyfus, is there no distinction made between sin and law-breaking? Ed, Ed. Ed, it was a theocracy. There was no difference between civil law and religious and moral law. Absolutely not. The king was God. The king was the king of kings. You, every law you broke was a law against the king. Everything you did that was wrong, you, you're breaking the law of the king. So think, think outside of ancient Israel. Think Egypt. You know, Think wherever you want. If you break the law of the king, right, um, you're, you're in trouble, whether that's a moral law, a ritual law, a religious obligation, or a civil law. We are, <coughs> are so used to, you know, thinking that way between separation of church and state, what's ritual, what's moral, what's ethical, what's legal or civil. There was no such distinction in the ancient world. 
and none in ancient Israel. And some of us want to argue uh, there's not a lot of it in modern Israel um, in terms of the separation between church and state, right? That the, that the Orthodox still, they control all issues of personal status um, and that have to do with religious, uh, you know, re- religious status, like marriage, divorce, um, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So uh, now I need to share my screen for us to look at the text. Chapter four of Leviticus. By Deber Adonai Moshe Limor, and God speaks to Moshe saying, speak to the Israelite people when a person unwittingly incurs guilt in regard of any of God's commandments about things not to be done and does one of them. If it is the anointed priest who has incurred guilt so that blame falls upon the people, he shall offer for the sin of which he is guilty a bull of the herd without blemish as a sin offering before Yudhe He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before Yudhe and lay his hand upon the head of the bull. The bull shall be slaughtered before Yudhe Vavhe. All right, remember, how do you designate the korban as being yours? Korban, you lay your head on the hands of the animal. So you claim ownership of this animal. That's the only way it can serve as atonement for you. So this is the priest who is being, and this is going to be meaningful later, which is why I'm bringing it up. So um, you put your hand on its uh, rosh, on its head, and you designate it as yours. Then it can serve as expiation for what you have done. And the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it into the tent of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before you have where, because this is also going to matter. Where does the blood get sprinkled? And we're going to talk with Yitz Greenberg about why that matters. All right. So where, if a priest sins unwittingly, then the blood is sprinkled Pnei parochet, in front of the parochet, in front of the curtain of the shrine. The priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of aromatic incense, which is in the tent of meeting before Yudhe and all the rest of the bull's blood shall be poured out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. All right. So unless you have memorized where everything is in the Mishkan, this can sound a little confusing, right? Um, But some of us have memorized where everything is. So what this means is there has to be a sprinkling at the parochet, at the front of the curtain, but also the priest has to go in to the tent of meat, has to go in to... um, where the uh, ketoret is, where the incense altar is, and put blood there. The rest of the blood he takes back out of the mishkan and pours it at the base of the burnt offering altar, and that is outside in the courtyard. We're going to look at a diagram, not to worry. Do you think I would come without visuals? Visual learner that I am? Okay. He shall remove all the fat from the bull of sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is about the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat on them that is at the loins and the protuberance on the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it is removed from the ox of sacrifice for shlamim. The priest shall turn them into smoke on the altar of burnt offering. So we remember the fat is offered to God. That's why it's turned into smoke is it is offered as smell uh, for God. Um, the other thing is uh, that, of course, all of the uh, organs are taken out, the kidneys and the liver, because we know those were used for what in the ancient world? Divination. Yes. Perfect. I love it. My students, I love that. So it was used for divination. So you want to make sure there's no confusion that the Israelite cult is not doing divination with animal organs. Divination was done with the Urim and Tumim. So it's not that we don't do it, but we don't do it with animal organs. Okay. And so then we get the hide of the bull, its flesh, its head and its legs and its entrail and its dung. All the rest of the bull he shall carry to a clean place outside the camp. 
to the ash heap and burn it up in a wood fire. It shall be burned on the ash heap. Remember, it is sacred. Um, so it has to be taken to a clean place. Yisrael. <clears throat> now we're getting a different category. If it is the whole community of Israel that has erred and the matter escapes the notice of the congregation so that they do any of the things which God's commandments ought, say ought not to be done and they realize their guilt. When the sin through which they incurred guilt becomes known, now we have a different word used. What, what, what word do we have used at the beginning of 13? Kol adat Israel, The whole Adah of Israel. What do we have here at 14? Vihikrivu hakahal par. So the kahal is going to bring the par, is going to bring the bull. <clears throat> Are these the same? Is kol adat Israel the same as the kahal? We don't know. Milgram argues no. They are different. That Adah and Kahal are different because otherwise there's places it gets, it, it makes no sense if they're the same. So who puts their hands on the animal? Remember, you say that you designate the animal as belonging to you and expiating for your sin by putting your hand on its head. Who puts the hands on the head of this animal when it's the whole congregation that has sinned? Zikne Haeda, the elders of the community. So they become the representatives, the elders. Why? Well, the elders in general are the leaders, unlike today, right? Back then, um, you had to be an elder. You had to have some experience. You had to have lived a little. You had to have wisdom before you could become a leader, really, unless you're a military leader um, like Joshua. But so you have the zikne eda. You have the elders of the community essentially standing for the entire community and putting their head on the head of the animal. We might talk a little bit about um, what kind of responsibility might this be suggesting leaders have for their constituency, right? Right. If they're the ones basically having to bring and identify this animal as theirs, isn't it in some way implicating the elders to say, this is our animal, we're bringing it, we're putting our hands on it, um, because it's kind of our fault that the congregation has erred. I'm just asking you to consider it. And the uh, anointed priest will bring some of the blood of the bull. In this case, where? Where does the blood go? Into the tent of meeting. And the priest will dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of it seven times before Yudhe again in front of the parochet, in front of the curtain. Okay, we know we know that from the last one. Some of the blood will be put on the horns of the altar, which is before God in the tent of meeting. All the rest of the blood will be poured out at the altar of burnt offering. So this is a familiar um, procedure. All the fat gets removed and turned into smoke because that's for God. He shall do with this bull just as with the priest's bull. Thus the priest shall make expiation for them and they shall be forgiven. All right, again, look at how JPS translates this. The priest shall make expiation for them and they shall be forgiven. They are forgiven. So there's arguments in the scholarly literature about what nislach means. Does it mean they are forgiven or does it mean that their inadvertent sin, the, the implications of that sin are mitigated? A lot of people want to use the word mitigation here because we're not sure it forgives the person. What it does is it mitigates the effect of the sin of these people, right? It's different if you're saying they are forgiven. That is different than what you're doing here is a different procedure than if what you're doing is mitigating the effects of that sin on the sancta. Okay. He shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering of the congregation. Now we go to the next category. If it's a chieftain who incurs guilt and realizes his guilt, we're dealing now with a male goat. 
without blemish. He will lay his hands on the goat's head, of course, and it shall be slaughtered at the spot where the burnt offering is slaughtered, of course, um, as a chatat. The priest shall take with his finger some of the blood of the sin offering, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and the rest of the blood is poured out at the base of the altar. So if it's, if it's a nasi, it doesn't go, the blood doesn't go inside, right? It's, it all stays outside at the horns of the altar of offering. And the fat, of course, is going to be given to God. Now, if we take a regular Joe Schmo, who does something inadvertently and realizes his guilt, he will bring a female goat without blemish. Will, and of course, he has to lay his hands on the head to say, this is, you know, this is mine. It, it's my offering. The priest shall take the blood, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, and the rest of its blood will be poured out at the base of the altar. So again, it stays outside the parochet. It stays outside the mishkan um, proper and is in the courtyard where the, uh, where the big altar of sacrifice is. Fat gets given to God. If the offering he brings as a sin offering is a sheep, he shall bring a female without blemish. So you could bring a female goat or a female sheep. Same procedure is done uh, with the blood. Um, Yitz Greenberg is going to talk particularly about this sin right here. If a person incurs guilt when he has heard a public imprecation and although able to testify as one who has either seen or learned of the matter, he does not give information so that he is subject to punishment or when a person touches any unclean thing, then what happens? Or when you say uh, an oath to bad or good purpose, because you're not supposed to swear, um, then you're going to bring a chatat. All right. So Yitz Greenberg is talking here and he, he brings this in part, this first one here. How, how is this person incurring guilt? There's something in the public sector. They know something about it and they refrain from testifying. So this is not an act that is done. This is a sin that comes about by non-action, by not doing um, and we'll talk a little bit about um, a little bit about what that means. All right, we're talking about the difference between male goats and female goats, and are there hierarchies? Yes, there are hierarchies, of course. Um, and what what do you imagine is the difference between um, a bull and something else? A bull is a Volkswagen, right? So you're going to bring a bull is hugely expensive, and is a lot of meat is a lot of resources. So the implication is a, a bull, something went down, <laughs> something big went down. Um, there are people who want to argue that when you start looking at how many animals are involved here and how many bulls get offered just on, on Rosh Chodesh, on a holiday for sin offerings, if you start looking at the actual number of animals and you add them up, which some people have done, can you imagine if that's your job? So some people have actually done that. They say it is absolutely impossible that this ever happened. There, it just would have been running through way too many resources that there's no way this many animals would have been offered on a regular basis. Uh, it, it, was un, it was just completely unsustainable. It never happened. That it's all fantasy. Okay. Um, that's possible. Um, you know, the good old days when we used to do all of this and it's like, what good old days? Never happened. So maybe, um, maybe it was the ideal and they never lived into it. We don't know. I haven't done the math. I haven't added that up, but it does seem like a lot of meat and it does seem like a lot of animal, like for, you know, over and over and over and over and over and over and over. <laughs> so Barry says the size of the bouquet of flowers reflects the guilt of the man giving it to his wife. Right. So the bigger the bouquet, right. And how many women know, as soon as he comes through the door with flowers, they can assess <laughs> like huge bouquet. I don't, I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. Don't even tell me. I'll just take the flowers. Thank you very much. And I hope there's a little box that comes with it too. Um, I, I find it interesting that th there's the implication here that it, you can't just say, well, I did something and I didn't realize it. And so what? That's right. And when you come and realize it, that 
you 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 have to do something. That's right. And so that we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, so yes, we're going to talk about what what are the implications for us, right? About that, and I think it's fabulously spot on. That's exactly right. You don't get to say, "Oops, I didn't know." So big sin gets a man. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So because um, as Barry pointed out, you have one male to a lot of females. Um, you've got a you know a stud who who impregnates lots of females. So. Um, so that stud is very expensive. Okay. Judith? Doesn't the, the ritual that takes place also indicate the depth of the sin that is being expiated? I noticed that the, the ghosts, they don't get the same treatment as the bull. Uh, they get the blood poured outside. They're, they're not even in the, the sacred space. Right. So that we're going to look at, we're going to go to Yitz Greenberg. Okay. And, and talk about that. Okay, let's go. I keep threatening. Okay, here we go. Um, all right. So here is his diagram of the, the Mishkan. So you'll see that it's divided into thirds, the outer court, so that the space that is created by the outer fencing, that's where the altar is for the animal offerings. And that's where the laver is. Those of you who have studied with me about the mirrors, the women's mirrors that made the laver, that's where the laver is right outside the curtain that leads into the actual Mishkan. Okay. So here's the laver. Here's the curtain. This is the actual structure of the Mishkan. This is fencing. All of this is fencing. Okay. Here's the actual Mishkan. So one third is here, one third is here, and one third is here. I mean, and I'm not saying they're equal sizes. I'm saying it's divided into thirds. This area, this area, and this area. So this is where, this is the Mishkan. This is where there's the menorah, the shulchan with the table with all of the bread offering on it, and the 12 loaves. And here is the incense altar. Okay. Then you have the parochet going into the Holy of Holies, the curtain that divides the, this part of the Mishkan from this part. This part, the priests come in here. Levites and priests can be here. Only priests can be here. And only the high priest on Yom Kippur can go here. Okay? So we're, we're talking about penetrating into the from less limited to most limited. Okay. So here's the um, Aron. Um, so, so keep that in your brain, right? That we're moving from least restrictive to most restrictive. All right. So what does Yus Greenberg have to say here? The sinful behaviors of people are not only wrong acts that need correction and repentance for this from the sinners, they create an atmosphere in the community and culture, culture within which the acts are done. Milgram shows that if one looks at the sins that require a chatat, as well as on which altar the sacrifice was brought and where the blood of sacrifice is spilled, the following pattern emerges. And we're going to get another chart, not to worry. When an individual involuntarily, unintentionally commits a sin, she or he generates a moral pollution in the culture of the community. The symbolic language of the sacrifice says that the toxic effect attacks the outer court of the Mishkan and its altar. If the whole community or its leadership commit an unintentional sin, then the act is more weighty it's a more weighty creator of pollution. As it were, the toxicity penetrates further and attacks the altar of incense in the inner sanctuary. Finally, if intentional and unrepented sins are committed, the toxic fallout spreads farther and deeper. The spiritual pollution attacks the ark in the Holy of Holies in the very innermost sanctum of the tabernacle. Here is Milgram's illustration. All right, so let's look. Individual, involuntary acts pollute to this point. 
if you want to use that language, which I really like. Involuntary communal sin penetrates or attacks to this point. Brazen and unrepented offenses contaminate all the way into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Now, why do you think I'm so excited about this? (laughs) (laughs) Just (laughs) thank you, Bert. So if you think about it, one person inadvertently doing something, how much does that influence society and the culture? Not so much. I mean, some, but not so much. But when the whole community is unaware of screwing up, it permeates further into the heart of the community, doesn't it? And when it's brazen and unrepented by the community, all the way to the center is the rot that is created. That's, that's Milgram's argument here. And I think it is fantastically appropriate for us. I screw up. Okay, how much do I inadvertently, how much, do, how much damage to the culture that I live in have I done? Probably not so much, but, but I do some, right? Um, and when we talk about this model, I want us to think in terms of the involuntary communal sin as, let's just say, racism. That is a much bigger societal, cultural contamination. Every time I commit an inadvertent act as a member of a community that is doing inadvertent acts of racism, what happens? It contaminates, it attacks more the center of our culture. It creates an environment that is informed, if you will. I I need a more negative word. We, we create a culture, an environment that is contaminated and it touches everybody in that sense, right? It contaminates everybody. Toxic. Toxic, correct. And when it's brazen and unrepentant, what happens? The attack goes all the way to the Holy of Holies, the Capitol building, draw your own conclusions about what I just said. When it is brazen and unrepented, then it goes all the way to the Holy of Holies. It goes all the way into the Capitol itself. When the, it is brazen lies, brazen sin, brazen and unrepented, now you are in big, big trouble as a society, as a culture, unless the individual and the community repent, think Black Lives Matter, whatever you think about the organization, just think about, right, what happened this summer. Unless the community repents and brings a purification sacrifice to purge the tabernacle, the pollution caused by sinful acts builds up. Yes, thank you, Yitz Greenberg. And at some point, what does that mean? I made up the language, Everyone's contaminated, but that's not the Levitical language. What would Leviticus say? Leviticus would say, if all of this gets contaminated, what happens? The divine presence is unable to dwell there. It is repelled, right? That's pure Leviticus. At some point, the divine presence cannot tolerate such an atmosphere in which sins are neither checked nor repented and reversed. Ultimately, when the presence of sin reaches toxic levels, the divine presence will leave the Mishkan. Read society. (laughs) The symbolic language of sacrifices is telling us that a society builds up a culture in which people live and work. If sin is not checked or undone, it becomes dominant. People are living in an environment full of evil and will be affected by it. Then the divine presence will leave, leaving behind a useless, empty shell of a building. This is the scene that Ezekiel portrayed in his mystic vision of the chariot of God leaving the temple. The evil pollution in the society stifled good people and ready for this? 
normalized bad behavior. Normalized bad behavior. Like, I don't know, lying, alternative facts, perhaps. Israel became a culture of sin and death, which the God of life would not abide. That's He's talking about Ezekiel. Similarly, Jeremiah describes a temple hollowed out of holiness and sunk in an atmosphere of oppression and abuse from human to human. God then left the temple, leaving a void, a lifeless sanctuary without God for the Babylonians to enter and destroy at will. What is Jeremiah? What is Jeremiah trying to deal with? What is he trying to answer? He's trying to answer how could the Mishka, how could the temple, the seat of the most powerful deity there is in the universe, Yudhe how could it be destroyed? How could the most powerful God in the universe ever, the omnipotent, the omniscient, the omnipresent, how could it happen? If God controls everything, how could this happen? What does Jeremiah answer? Because the people behaved with each other in such a way that it created a society filled with evil and therefore the divine could no longer dwell in that people, in that society, in that culture. So if God's not there, guess what? God's house can be destroyed, of course. What has the case of extended impurity to do with this? Often impurity symbolically stands for death. We've talked about this a lot before. Don't worry, Alexandra, we're going to talk about it again. Um, so I will, I will tie it all up for you at some point. Holiness symbolically represents life. So that is an argument that I agree with. I buy that argument and y'all know that. Impurity is about contact with death, proximity to death. Holiness is about um, connecting to life. This is why people's corpses are not allowed in the Mishkan, Those extending impurity, instead of removing it through prompt purification and rebirth to life rituals, allow expanded presence of death to permeate the community. In rituals as shown above in ethics and sin, unless impurity is checked, God will leave. Our portion teaches us that not only acts of sin, but choosing to bystand, neither to fight nor report criminals is a grave offense whose influence spreads and poisons the atmosphere of a community. Similarly, complacency in living with death or death impurity, rather than removing it, crowds out a culture of life and holiness. And in the end, God departs from a culture of death, right? As opposed to Egypt, right? Which worshiped death, which was obsessed with death. With the aid of Milgram, we're able to cut through this somewhat remote or baffling symbolic language of the sacrifices, blah, 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 blah. Life needs to be constantly affirmed and renewed. Failure in either the ethical, such as bystanding in the face of sin or ritual realms, generates an atmosphere where the ability to resist sin or death is debilitated. Without repentance and serious action to stop this process of sin slash death entrenching itself, the moral and spiritual oxygen will be sucked out of the community. The final result is that the divine presence will depart from such a society. In bringing the purification sacrifice, notice he also buys this. He doesn't call it the sin offering, does he? No, he calls it the purification sacrifice. The individual, the leader, and the community, right? All four levels that we saw signal that they want to fight against sin and not allow evil to become normative or dominant. They signal that bystanding is as grave an act as outright sinning because it allows bad actions to go unchecked and evil to dig itself deeply into the community. In every society, one must end bystanding and get people to step up and fight for the good. In parallel, one must constantly reassert or renew life or the society may pass the tipping point and slip into a culture of moral or spiritual death. Go Rabbi Greenberg. Who wants to say something? I know that was a, that was a mouthful. Pam. Wow. Right. Right. Preach. Who wants to say Leviticus has nothing to say to us. Leviticus says we are all responsible 
for what kind of a culture we are allowing, what kind of a culture we are enabling. And we enable often by our silence. We enable by our non-action, which is why he points to that sin about not stepping up. It's a sin, right? It is wrongdoing to not step up and to counteractively a culture of sin, evil, death, all of those things. I found the expression chasing God away an interesting concept. Right? God is supposed to be everywhere, but we nevertheless have the capacity to push God. On the one hand, open up a space so that God or godliness can be there. And then the flip side of that, by our actions, both personal and communal, uh, that we can chase God away. I also find the idea of communal sin very interesting. We're used to thinking, you know, we speak English and it's a Christian language, but we're used to thinking of sin as being an individual thing and needing, you know, personal saving. Uh, But here, there's very much the emphasis on all the different aspects of it. Yes. A lot to think about. Yes. So to your point about chasing God away, an interesting thought, because God is everywhere. Malocho ha'aretz kavodo. God is everywhere. Yes. But think of it rather, because for them, it wasn't that way, right? God was not everywhere. Of course, God was everywhere, but God was concentrated in the Mishkan, in the temple. I do think it is still deeply meaningful and very powerful to talk about how concentrated is the divine, is holiness in our society, That makes a lot of sense to me. And that when we allow a society to become corrupt, when we allow evil and bad behavior to become dominant and tolerated, then holiness is not here in an intense way. It is, we are shoving it away. And I think that is very, very powerful language. And I think it is absolutely, absolutely still really important for us to take seriously. Um, all right, uh, Judith and then Jana. Is even asking someone to please put on a mask, a communal standing up? Yes, yes. Because I would say what it's saying is you don't have to, you know, you don't have to like masks. You don't have to want to wear one. You don't have to even think that, but we are being told by the smartest people in this area that it protects the community, so put it on <laughs> and pull it up. <laughs> I saw I saw an illustration at a at a at a place when we were on vacation that said wearing a mask like like this no <laughs> is like wearing underwear like this. And I'll leave the visual. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It was very funny. That's it very was, funny. It's very funny. Uh, Jana. My question is kind of the, the concept of community, right? So how how does it affect the presence of God or where we are in the Mishkan if the community is so divided that you, you can't seem to reach or, or, or even, even have a conversation with people that disagree and are, are doing things that feel just, you know, not, not honest and not true? So like the whole concept of what, what's a community? Is the community the world? Is the community, you know, our, our, our temple? How do we define community? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right? So yes. Right? Yeah. We, and we have to start where we can start and have the most impact, which is right in, our, in this group. Like this is where we have... The most impact is in our community, obviously, but then we have to vote, right? Right. And we have to campaign and we have to raise money for candidates who will serve our city and state in the ways that line up with our understanding of what is moral and ethical and other people have to do the same. And guess what? A democracy thrives and flourishes when both sides 
elect candidates that they really feel are ethically and morally standing up for their values. But but here's the issue. What if what if one has a different or understanding of ethics? Then you have to fight that out. Okay. 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 But, but here's, here's what I want to point to. You said earlier, but what about when a community is so divided? Divided is not the problem. No, it's, it's, it's hate filled is the problem. What I mean is the kind of division where it feels like there, there's just no way to communicate. It's just, so, so maybe we can't, but we have to elect representatives, and I'm just talking election because I'm talking, that's really our way of understanding laws, right, is through the civic arm, and that's why I'm using that language. Um, But religious leaders also need to be held to account, right, for for behavior. I think we can all agree that a clergy person who molests a student, I'm sorry, I think there are lines where we can say we need to hold everybody accountable for that, right, or for harassment. Or for overt racist comments, or for right there, there is a line that we can hold that we're not even holding. Uh, correct. How long has hashtag Me Too taken? Right. Where the heck was that? Mm-hmm. Right. And somebody who I was just reading said, you know, the alarm bells have been ringing people for five hundred years, <laughs> and the pandemic for the first time, racism has been happening for a really long time. So has sexism, you know, and misogyny. It takes gunning down six people in a in a in a spa to like wake us up to misogyny, right? So the line could have been held way way sooner. Right. Um, and and when you ask the rabbis when they say what destroyed the second temple because it can't be if God is there then there's no way that that could happen. And what destroyed the temple is sinat chinam, baseless hatred. Yeah. So we can disagree about what the policy should be that best supports my values, which are really different from your values. Take abortion, abortion rights. So right. if you right, you we can have very strong moral disagreements and what policies should be in place as a result of our moral standing that are completely opposed. Right. We're gonna have to figure that out then. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But for me to hate you, correct for having those views and for me to denigrate you for those views, which I'm guilty of. I I will, I will admit it. I am guilty of that. Yeah. Um, That's where we have control. Correct. Right. Over checking ourselves. You know, when I see one of those anti-choice people, I just get, I start frothing at the mouth. Many of you (laughs) know I, I worked in abortion care for four years. And so I just start frothing at the mouth, but, um, that's the part we can, that's the part ethically and morally I have responsibility for, right? Is cultivating a culture of hate around those disagreements or a culture of we have to figure this out because we have to live in the same country. Yeah. Beautiful. Alexandra, you have to. I, I, too, I, I too was thinking about community um, as I'm walking in without a mask, actually, and by myself in a very, <laughs> but, um, and I take the mask wearing seriously as well. I, I also don't understand the mask wearing that's not just the nose, but just the hanging under the chin mask, like not even coverage of the mouth and the nose, but that's an aside. The, I guess, w- am I taking Leviticus too, uh, too literally when I think about this country and that the foundational piece of this country is slavery? So is God not present? You know what I'm saying? Like, is it, a, is it black and white or is this leaving room or inviting us? That's obviously inviting us to critically reflect because, you know, the, while this country has afforded us, you know, especially as Jews, despite anti-Semitism, many privileges and, and opportunities, the actual, like, you know, killing off of indigenous people and the foundation is built on slavery. So I don't know. What's, what is that? Where does that leave us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a really good question. And what you hit on was the most important part of that question is reflective. So, so Torah allows slavery. And in the language of Yitz Greenberg, Yitz Greenberg would say, because you have to take Judaism took the world as it is. And Torah is about trying to move it to what it should be. So the world had slaves, period. There was no society without slave labor. So, Rabbi Amy, is it 
sorry, like I, I, this is one more point to, to this idea of purity just seems completely unrealistic okay, stop, in the stop. way that humans operate. Okay, stop. Two, there's, there's two different concepts here. I want to get to them both. So I hear you. I hear you. First one is there, slavery just is, and it was, and there was no understanding of an economic system in, in any kind of large civilization without it. So, but how do you treat your slaves? That's what Torah cares about. Just because they work for you doesn't mean you get to treat them like Americans treated African-Americans that they owned. Much of what happened in slave-owning America is forbidden by Torah law. Now, what what many of us would say is Torah continues to evolve. Our understanding of what is ethical, what is right, continues to evolve and change. We have come to a place where we understand it is completely unethical to own slaves. It is completely unethical to build one's culture and society on slave labor. And so my answer to you is our country was founded on horrifying practices that they did not understand as horrifying in many cases. We do now. So our job is, as we realize those things, to fix them. And let me tell you something. There are more slaves in the world now than ever before. More slavery now than ever, ever there was in the ancient world. There's more human trafficking. There is more people being paid a non-living wage. There is way more child slavery now than ever before in the history of the world. So how are we doing? Not so great. We just don't call it slavery anymore. (laughs) right? We call it the working poor or we call it human trafficking, but it's still happening and it's still horrifying and we have to end it. So in order for Torah and, and, and our Jewish understanding of what's right and wrong to evolve, we have to be reflective. That's why we study this stuff every single week because we're never done. I just said this to a friend of mine recently, Charles. I just said, we are never, ever done. As individuals, as communities, we have to continually reflect on what our understanding of ethics is, right and wrong. I have a very short answer to your second question about purity. Purity is a very specific thing. It is not ethical. It has nothing to do with ethics. Purity was a state. You were in a state of ritual regularity. There were things that made you dysregular, like childbirth, intercourse, lots contamination by a, a corpse, that, that puts you in a place of dysregularity, which according to Torah is called impurity. Purity is nothing about behavior, nothing. So, and we don't need pure and impure as categories anymore because there's no temple. So, the, and there's no temple ritual to purify. Therefore, there, the language of purity doesn't work for us, um, but we can still use the language of regularity and dis regularity. So Brian, somebody was asking about, um, you know, are we automatically members of a community? Yes. Torah would say, absolutely. We are always dealing with other people. We are always contributing to the, to the society we live in and what's, what's normative and what will be tolerated and won't be tolerated. Right. So, um, so yeah, I think we, we, whether you want to be or not, (laughs) you are obligated to contribute to the community in a way that doesn't lead to driving holiness out. That doesn't lead to the normalization of bad behavior, right? And that leads to the normalizing of death in life. That that's everybody's job is to contribute in the ways that they can to a society that is affirming of life affirming of holiness. And then we have to argue about what that means, right? That's our, that's our work as individuals and as a community is to continue to argue about what that is and what that looks like and how to enact that in our individual lives and in the life of our community. That is what y'all do every time you show up here on a Friday morning or you listen later, or you come to Friday night services, right? That's what we're doing. We're taking responsibility for taking seriously our traditions conversation about what kind of a society do we want to build? What are the specifics sometimes of that? What's more general? 
Um, and to strengthen ourselves. I think study, this kind of holy study and conversation and worship and all those other things we do as a synagogue, it strengthens us to be able to stand up and right and and stand against certain things in our culture and our society and and work on like like Yitz Greenberg said to work on behalf of the good. Um, and we all need that. We need encouragement. It's really hard to stand up to to a majority culture. It's really hard to to go against right what what is popular culture. Um, it's really hard. Um, so good for y'all. Yishkoach. May you be strengthened uh, in your study. And someone said Jews are great at arguing. It is so true. Um, we, it's like the only sport we excel at is what I say. <laughs> it's the only sport we naturally excel at is arguing and debate. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.